Okay, uh, we are continuing our series uh, this morning uh, in Mark's Gospel. Uh, we've been taking time over a couple of years and a wee bit more uh, to look at the Gospel of Mark uh, and to really understand uh, what it is that God is saying through the life uh, and the ministry of Jesus. Uh, we're continuing on from last week. Last week we were thinking about how God is in control. He has complete authority uh, over all things, both good and bad, when we see situations and circumstances in life. And we know that God has supreme authority uh, over all things. Uh, and that is something that brings us hope and encouragement uh, and also belief uh, that God is working all things uh, according to his plan and purpose. And nothing has changed uh, in our passage this morning. This passage, uh, in many senses, is pretty chaotic. There are a number of things that are happening that would give the appearance that God is not in control. Um, but I would want to remind us that God really is, and he is using this particular situation to glorify his name. Um, as we progress more and more into the Gospel of Mark, um, we see that the cross is given a much sharper focus. We have clarity and understanding and insight that God's plan and purpose was for Jesus to die for each one of us. Uh, and we see this more, cl more clearly uh, in our passage in Mark 14 uh, in verses 27 to 52. So let's read together this passage. I'm going to be reading from the Christian Standard Bible, uh, the CSB. The words are going to be up on the screen, um, but if you want to follow along with an actual Bible, um, then you can take one from the back there. I'll give you a moment to do that uh, if you want to. Um, very quickly, the story moves uh, from the Passover table to the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, and Mark writes these words for us uh, in Mark 14, uh, in verse uh, 27. Uh, then Jesus said to them, All of you will fall away. Because it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. Peter told him, even if everyone falls away, I will not. Truly I tell you, Jesus said to him, today this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he kept insisting, if I have to die with you, I will never deny you. And they all said the same thing. Then they came to a place called Gethsemane, and he told his disciples, Sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. He said to them, I am deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and stay awake. He went a little further, fell to the ground, and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Then he came and found them sleeping. He said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Couldn't you stay awake one hour? Stay awake and pray so that you won't enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once again, he went away and prayed, saying the same thing. And again he came and found them sleeping, because they could not keep their eyes open. They did not know what to say to him. Then he came a third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The time has come. See, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let's go. See, my betrayer is near. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, suddenly arrived. With him was a mob with swords and clubs from the chief priests, the scribes and the elders. His betrayer had given them a signal. The one I kiss, he said, 
He's the one. Arrest him and take him away under guard. So when he came, immediately he went up to Jesus and said, Rabbi, and kissed him. They took hold of him and arrested him. One of those who stood by drew his sword, struck the high priest's servant and cut off his ear. Jesus said to them, Have you come out with swords and clubs as if I were a criminal to capture me? Every day I was among you, teaching in the temple, and you didn't arrest me, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then they all deserted him and ran away. Now a certain young man, wearing nothing but a linen cloth, was following him. They caught hold of him, but he left the linen cloth behind and ran away naked. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Uh, let's get the last two verses, verses 51 to 52, out of the way, um, because I don't want you to be spending the whole time during a sermon thinking, what on earth is going on there? Um, wondering why Mark included this in the passage. Uh, we need to ask a question to begin with. What is the point of a random naked guy in Mark's Gospel in chapter 14? The most likely scenario is that this is Mark himself. Um, and I love the fact that Mark wanted to include all the facts, um, even the embarrassing details. It reminds me of one of those scenarios when someone's too embarrassed to share that it's themselves, and so they say, I'm speaking on behalf of a friend of mine. Um, but there is an important reason why Mark includes this. Um, he was the last person. He was the last one to see what it is that happened to Jesus. Every other disciple had ran away. Mark was the last person and he also ran. And so it was Jesus and his accusers, the ones who wanted to kill him. So don't, don't let these verses distract you. This is a moment of high tension in this particular part of the story. What has been lurking beneath is now rising to the surface. Suddenly we have a more accurate picture as to what is going on in the hearts and minds of certain individuals. We see more clearly the intentions of the leaders, the intentions of the disciples, the intentions of Judas, and also the intentions of Jesus himself. There is just this, this light that is turned on. It's a moment where what was once unseen is now seen in a much clearer way. It's almost like the dimmer switch has went from notch number five to notch number nine. We suddenly have clarity and insight as to what it is that God is doing through the hearts and minds of different individuals. And we are, let's be honest, masters at hiding from other people what is going on within our own lives. We can all testify to this. We all do a great and excellent job at keeping from people what is the motivation and the desire of our own heart? But there are moments in our life where God also turns that dimmer switch up and suddenly people and yourself see, including myself as well, we see exactly what is going on within our own heart. We see what it is that God is doing and we also see the ways in which we are broken and messed up. Paul actually gives an example of this in 1 Corinthians 14 in verse 25. And he says that through the work of the Holy Spirit, the secrets of a person's heart will be revealed. The work of the Spirit results in this unveiling. Suddenly the person can see who they really are because God is convicting them. How much we would not want this to happen in the city of Glasgow. You know, our favourite word is fine. You know, we're quite happy to say to people, I'm fine, I'm doing okay. 
And yet all this craziness is going on behind us in our lives and in our hearts. But there do come these moments where you and other people really do see. You see exactly what is going on in the life of a particular person. And this is what happens in our passage. We see the hearts of the disciples. In verses 37 uh, through to 39, Jesus went away to pray on a number of, of occasions. And when he returned to see Peter, James and John, we read these words. Then he came and found them sleeping. He said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Couldn't you stay awake for one hour? Stay awake and pray so that you won't, en- you won't enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once again, he went away and prayed, saying the same thing. And again, he came and found them sleeping because they could not keep their eyes open. They did not know what to say to him. Then he came a third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough, the time has come. See, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let's go. See, my betrayer is near. So the issue here in these verses is not the fact that the disciples are sleeping in the garden. Because it is not a sin to sleep. Rest is an important command in scripture. The issue is why it is they are sleeping in the garden. What is at the very heart of what is going on within the lives of these disciples? The reality is that these disciples are lazy. They would much rather close their eyes and do nothing than meet with God and intercede for their rabbi. You know, laziness is one of those acceptable sins in church. It can often get a good press. We can almost be proud of the fact that we are lazy. And yet, when we look at the disciples' laziness and how it is that Jesus responds to the disciples, you can see that Jesus is in conflict with the fact that they are lazy. Jesus is exasperated at what it is they are doing. When you know what it is you should do, and you do not do it, by definition, you are lazy. And you cannot be someone who is lazy and who loves God at the same time. You would just be too lazy to lift your arms in praise. You just have no desire to live for him with all that you are. You know, we have the potential as a church family, as a body, to be rife with laziness. We all have something within our heart that would much rather do nothing than do something for Jesus and his kingdom. And I want us just to be aware of that. There is that potential that exists within each one of us to rest when we shouldn't rest, to do nothing when we should be doing something. Are we okay with that? Are we already happy to accommodate that within our own life? This is a challenge, and this in many ways is a side point to our passage, but it is something that is very clear from the lives of the disciples. The dimmer switch is being turned up, and we see what is going on within their hearts and minds. What I want us to do today is to focus on both Judas and Jesus. In this moment of high tension, we see who Judas is, and we also see more and more of the faithfulness and love of Jesus. Judas is someone who is hypocritical. He loves putting on this facade, this front. And deep down inside, his desire is to live for himself. To fulfill his sinful urges. And yet Jesus is someone who always and consistently follows the will of his Father. So I want to ask a question as we think of Judas and Jesus. 
Who do you resemble most in your life? As you look at these two pictures, these two individuals, which individual can you connect with most? As you think of all the different situations and scenarios of life, the apostles' names are often listed throughout the Gospels, and they are in a particular order. Uh, Judas's name is always last in that order. Many scholars believe that this relates to apostolic hierarchy, that Judas was at the very end because he was seen as someone who had the least responsibility or was the least important. But Judas's name is always last in the list, not because he had the least authority or responsibility. He actually had great authority and responsibility. He was a treasure within that group. He is last because of what he was about to do. He was about to betray Jesus. Judas was also a man who consistently allowed the devil to gain a foothold in his life. He was not open to the things of God. He was open to the work of the enemy in his life. He was quite happy to embrace what it is the devil wanted him to do. <coughs> Jesus says, speaking of Judas uh, in Luke chapter 6 uh, verse 70, he says, did I not choose you of the twelve? So he's speaking to the disciples, the apostles, and yet one of you is a devil. He's speaking of Judas in this moment. Jesus characterises him in light of the demonic influence that is in his life. Also in Luke 22 verse 3, we read that Satan entered into Judas Iscariot, leading him to betray Jesus, as we see also in our passage in Mark's Gospel. Judas, alongside this, often put on this facade, this front, and it was to satisfy this desire to do wrong, to be sinful. We see this in John chapter 12, and when G Jesus is having a meal with Lazarus, Mary takes an expensive perfume and she anoints Jesus' feet and wipes his feet with her hair. And how does Judas respond in this moment? He says something that sounds spiritual. He's coming across again as if he is this godly man in verse 5. We read, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? This is the incredible thing about Jesus. He sees through all of this. He knows the front that Judas is putting on, that he has no interest for the poor, but is instead concerned about money. He defends her and he tells Jesus, he tells Judas rather to leave her alone. So Judas is someone who was chosen by the twelve. He had great responsibility. He was under the influence and the direction of the devil. And he consistently put on this front this facade. As we understand this man, I hope we have a clearer picture of our passage in Mark 14. And I want us just to look at verses 43 to 45. Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. And after going up to his disciples, we read that while he was still speaking, that's Jesus, Judas, one of the twelve, suddenly, suddenly arrived. With him was a mob with swords and clubs from the chief priests, the scribes and the elders. His betrayer had given them a signal. The one I kiss, he said, he's the one. Arrest him and take him away under guard. So when he came, immediately he went up to Jesus and said, Rabbi, and kissed him. Now normally, the disciples would greet one another with a kiss. But this, this wasn't a normal kiss. This was complete and utter betrayal from Judas towards Jesus. 
And we see something quite significant about Judas's character here. Judas was a man who definitely liked to deceive. But even in this moment of betrayal, Judas is still putting on this front. He is still approaching Jesus. He is face to face with Jesus. He says, Rabbi. He is treating him like a friend. But this is the precise moment where he is betraying his rabbi. He is turning his back on the one who has discipled him and ministered to him. Judas really does believe that he can live this double life. That he can convince every person in his world that he is a godly, good and righteous man. But deep down in his heart, he is living for something else. Jesus sees through this whole front that Judas puts on and he looks directly into his heart and what is motivating him. And we read in verse 48 um, and also in another of the Gospels, he says, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? So Jesus knows precisely what is taking place here. He knows exactly what is going on. It's an incredible moment in the life of Jesus. And a fascinating moment within human history. God is using all of us to fulfill his bigger plan and purpose. This is where we get the phrase, the kiss of death. And it's all the more painful that Judas is given this appearance of a friend. You know, let's be honest this morning. We can all be like Judas. We can convince God. We can convince other people. We can even (laughs) convince ourselves that we are this good person, that we are doing lots of good deeds and everything is good and right and just. But deep down, the motivation of our heart is to satisfy our sinful desire. For some of us, we have put on this Christian person front on for so long in our life that it's just become a matter of fact. It's just customary of who we are. We have deceived ourselves in so many different ways. And we are no longer sensitive to the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. As Jesus looked through Judas' behaviour, he also looks through each one of us. And he asks each one of us, are you betraying me? What is your first love? What is your priority in life? Is it for yourself or is it for me? What is the deepest desire of your heart? Is it to live for me and to love me with all that you are? Or is it to pursue something else? You know, I once heard the story of a husband um, who arrived at the scene of a crash um, and his wife was in this crash and she was sitting at the side of the pavement. She had a, a pale face, her eyes were wide open, her hair was messed up, she had a scar on her face. Um, and he went to his wife and he said, are you okay? And she kept saying over and over again, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. Now he knew with absolute certainty that she wasn't okay if he had just taken those words and he had concluded the condition of his wife solely in what it is she said he would believe that he would believe that she was fine that she was fine that she was fine but when he looked at the entire picture of the situation he could see that she was clearly not fine her words betrayed what was going on in her life and in the same way we can say to God I'm fine, we can say to other people, I'm fine, we can say to ourselves, I'm fine. But when we look at the entirety of our life, are we honestly fine? Is everything okay? Is it a picture 
of God or is it a picture of a life that is lived for ourself and a life that is rooted in sin? What an opportunity each one of us has to recommit our life to God. To not just say I'm fine but to turn to God and to ask that he would bring about transformation. God wants us to recognise that we can't do it on our own strength and we have to have complete dependence upon him in every single area of our lives. It's not good enough just to verbalise that we're okay. We need to put him first in every area. He wants us to say to him, basically the song that we sang, God, I need you, I need you, every hour I need you. My one defence, my righteousness. He wants us to declare that in our lives. It's not just a song we sing on a Sunday. It is something that we sing in every area of our lives and in the power of the Holy Spirit. To completely depend upon God means that Jesus is Lord of every area of your life. But it also means that we are more like Jesus. We start to imitate him. We start to look like him. And we read in verses 34 to 36 in our passage what it is that Jesus is like when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. So we read that he said to him, he said to them rather, speaking of the disciples, I am deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and stay awake. He went a little further, fell to the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. So Jesus, in this particular moment, is anticipating the weight of God's judgment and God's wrath upon his life. He understands that this is the most difficult thing that anybody could do in all of human history. To die for your sin and to die for my sin. It is more than the physical death. It is a spiritual abandonment from God the Father. And he is contemplating the significance of what is about to take place through the cross. When Jesus says, take this cup away from me, he is referring to the cup of God's wrath and judgment. And this is about to be poured out upon his life. And he is asking if there is any way out, any means that would result in him not needing to go through this, then God the Father, make that possible. But Jesus also says, nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. So this is arguably one of the most powerful and important moments of surrender. Jesus dies to any temptation to live for himself. He surrenders completely to the will of his heavenly father. And this is not stone cold contractual obedience from the son to the father. This is obedience that is rooted in a deep love for the one who is leading him and equipping him. In fact, Jesus refers to him as Abba, Father. Abba, Father. Now the word Abba is an Aramaic word that would most closely be translated as Daddy. This is a term that young children would use to address their fathers. And it (coughs) signifies this close, this intimate relationship between a son and a dad. So when Jesus says Abba, Father, he is underlining this closeness of relationship that he has. There is this bond of love 
and intimacy that exists. So I want us to, to really understand the significance of what is going on here. Jesus can only ever say, nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Because he first says, Abba, Father. The love, the depth of relationship that he has with his Father means that he can obey his Father and live for him with all that he is. You will only ever live for God when you know the love of God in your life. Don't waste your time this morning. Don't try and be obedient to God if you don't know what it means to love God. If you haven't first experienced his love, his grace and mercy, you need to be in a place in your life where you actually enjoy being in God's presence. It is fulfilling, it is satisfying to open up God's word, to pray, to be a part of God's family. When you're in that place of enjoyment and fulfilment and satisfaction, that means you can then obey God. You can live for him with all that you are. You see, Jesus was fulfilled he was satisfied. He enjoyed his heavenly father. And it meant he could say, nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. The example of Jesus, he loved his father and he lived for his father. Are you willing to make that step this morning? Are you willing to love God? And are you willing to live for him with all that you are? This is a challenge for us. Let us not be like those who are Judas-like, let us not be like those who put on this front, this facade. We tell people we're fine, but deep down we're not. Let us be like Jesus. Let us be those who are faithful, who always want to do his will in seasons of blessing, but also in seasons of hardship and trial. This is one of the most difficult moments in Jesus' earthly ministry in his life. And yet he chose to obey his father. He knew that God was in complete control. Now, if you're facing a difficult situation right now, if you're feeling overwhelmed by something, then ask God, what is it that you want me to do? How can I respond to this, Lord? I can't see any way forward. I need your wisdom. I need your insight. And as you pray that, believe that God will speak to you. And as God speaks to you, in the power of his Holy Spirit, it is possible for you to obey. But make sure that obedience is rooted in a love for him. We're going to pray in a moment and then we're going to respond in worship. During the time of worship, um, there is an opportunity, if you have faith in Jesus, uh, to come to the table. All of this, all of what we've talked about is rooted in the truth of the gospel, that Jesus has died for each one of us. And you have the opportunity, if you have faith in Jesus this morning, to come to this table and to take this bread and to break it and to give thanks for his body that was given for you. And as you take that bread, to then dip it into the cup and to remember Christ's blood that was shed for each one of us. What a privilege we have as God's family to reflect upon the gospel and to rejoice in the fact that we are free, we are restored and we are renewed. Let me pray and we're going to respond and worship together. Lord, we thank you that, that your word is honest and that you do not shy away from, from telling us the, the messiness of, of different situations and stories that we find in scripture. That many individuals in this passage made 
significant mistakes. They chose to go their own way and to do their own thing. But there was only one who was faithful to you, your son Jesus. And Lord, we thank you for his example. We thank you, Lord, that we have opportunity now to covenant as a family and to you that we will follow in light of his example and we would do so in the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray, Lord, that all of us would be rooted in a love for you, that we would receive your love and that we would be transformed by your grace. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.